what are we talking about tonight? So when we're learning to do something new, at first, as I'm sure you're aware by now, uh, we're generally pretty awkward whenever we do something new, whether it's playing an instrument or drawing or uh, photography or a new application on a computer, uh, using a new kind of mouse um, for the computer, anything that is new, at first, we're generally pretty awkward at, and that's because the movements are being guided by your frontal lobe, which is the part of your brain that, of course, makes decisions and uh, narrates life and uh, is uh, for impulse control. It's really important that we have frontal lobes. It's what actually provides us with a great survival advantage. Uh, both emotionally, the frontal lobe and the right side and left side where most of the language is, uh, not all, but a lot of the language is uh, uh, provided. This gives us wonderful opportunities to connect and social, be social beings. But the frontal lobe is not particularly good at guiding fluid movement. In fact, it's particularly bad. Habits uh, that are completely guided by the frontal lobe are very awkward. In fact, if you want to really screw with someone before they do something that they're very good at, for instance, suppose you're playing a game of ping pong with someone or bowling or uh, all the things that I don't really do because I'm a neurotic Jew from the Upper West Side, but if I did do them and I wanted to screw with uh, the people I was competing with, I would ask them to talk me through their wonderful ping-pong backhand or their wonderful bowling technique because in making them narrate it for me, I would be switching the guidance of those movements back from the basal ganglia where it's smooth to the frontal lobe where they would become very, very awkward at what they do. Once you ingrain a habit, a routine, a behavior, it moves from the frontal lobe to the basal ganglia, which is roughly in the epicenter, slightly towards the back of the brain, beneath the limbic area. And um, it's uh, not conscious. It's where ingrained routines that you do automatically, like when you take a shower and you wash yourself, or when you get on the subway and the next thing you know you're at the place where you go every day or when you find yourself putting on clothes and one moment you're putting you're selecting an outfit and the next moment you're fully dressed anything that you do automatically is housed in that region of the brain and the movements are very economical they're hardwired so uh, they operate very very quickly and there's a part of the basal ganglia called the striatum which connects ingrained behaviors with situations in life. And it says, oh, I'm hungry right now, so maybe I should look for food. Or I'm feeling uh, a little bit sticky because I was sitting in a dharma meeting with some strange tattooed guy and it was really hot and now I should take a shower. Or you're feeling tired and you decide to go to bed. So you have all these ingrained routines that are served up by the striatum. It's got sub-regions, the caudate, the putamen. You don't have to know any of this. Just know that there's a part of your brain that serves up 
routines and matches it to situations. So the way it works in general is a three-part mechanism. One, we notice that there's a certain degree of stress present. Stress could be hunger, stress could be feeling, you know, dirty or hot or uh, tired or uh, anxious. And then there's a behavior. And if we act through the behavior, then we get some kind of reward. The stress goes away. So cue, which is stress, behavior, which is the habit or the routine, and then the reward. So if you look at an example, you go to a um, social engagement and you feel self-conscious. And if you're one of those people that can drink safely, <laughs> guess which category I fall into. Uh, but if you can drink safely, then you might have the, when you get the cue of self-consciousness, you'll then be urged to do the behavior, which is to have a beer or a drink, and then you'll get the reward, which is uh, a diminution of the self-consciousness and a feeling of spontaneity and ease. So most of the time, healthy habits will release a little bit of a dopamine reward to congratulate you for your efforts. And then they'll also release, uh, release uh, some other neurotransmitters. So suppose you're feeling tired, long day of work, you decide, okay, I'm going to go home and relax. You get home, you close the front door, you find your couch, drink, pick up the magazine or the Dharma book, if you're masochistic, and... <laughs> Uh, you get a little reward of dopamine for making it home, and then you get some serotonin for feeling safe. Uh, or if you had that drink, you probably would not only get the dopamine, but you'd get a spike of GABA. If you were tired in the morning and you want another cup of coffee, so the tiredness creates stress, you drink the coffee, that's the behavior, and then the reward is not just the dopamine, but then you get a spike of acetylcholine, of course, which makes you uh, feel more alert and present. So if all works well, the dopamine reward is just enough to keep you wanting to do it again, but not so great that it only gives you one choice. If the dopamine reward is overwhelming, uh, you don't wind up with much of a choice. It becomes a addiction very quickly. So what are those overwhelming dopamine rewards? Well, for instance, let's look at a situation. It's 4 o'clock. You're at an office. You're really tired, and you're feeling the energy drain, and... Uh, you could walk outside, get some sun, you could uh, talk to a friend, you could uh, do uh, some quick stretches, or you could go to a vending machine and get a Snickers bar. Well, the Snickers bar is a bit unfair because it will blast uh, your nucleus accumbens with dopamine which will completely overwhelm all the other possibilities that are healthier, but don't release as much dopamine. If you're at a bar 
and uh, some you're feeling anxious, and somebody says, oh, well, you could talk to this person, or you could do this nice, fat, juicy line of cocaine. If, if that's something you feel comfortable with, you'll probably do the latter, because the latter will bombard your brain with dopamine. Uh, if the choice is between doing your taxes and watching Netflix, guess which one will release the dopamine? So guess what is behind virtually all of our avoidant coping strategies and all of our procrastination? It's generally situations where we're choosing a behavior that has virtually no reward or very little reward other than it's good for us in the long term. Between that and a choice that immediately bombards the brain with dopamine, which removes all of the stress we're feeling for a very short time. This is how bad habits and procrastination and avoidant routines all start. We choose behaviors that release greater amounts of dopamine than the ones that release less dopamine and other neurotransmitters which are sustainable. Dopamine is not sustainable. It's the one neurotransmitter that A, you habituate to very, very quickly, so you need more and more and more to get less and less and less relief and relief. It's also uh, an ever-diminishing supply during the course of the day, whereas your brain can probably, if you have enough of it, release enough GABA or serotonin. Uh, so, in essence, the television, a laptop, which release a lot of dopamine because they, the laptop screens are constantly moving, which activates the dopamine reward system in the nucleus accumbens. Uh, sugar, uh, certain other kinds of uh, <coughs> drugs and substances, gambling and shopping. Uh, all are notorious for releasing lots of dopamine and therefore your brain given equal weight will prefer you to always go towards the bad habit over the habit that releases or relieves stress in the long term. You'll go for the very short term blast of dopamine which will leave you high and dry. I'm saying you but this, occur, this is for me and everyone. And if that wasn't enough, you'd think that would be enough to keep us stuck in bad habits, but actually the, in the presence of uh, dopamine or uh, hyperactive caudate, it will hijack a part of the brain called the, or the frontal lobe called the orbital frontal, which will create all these additional thoughts telling us we're kind of screwed if we don't do our drug of choice or our behavior of choice that's ingrained. Uh, OCD, interestingly enough, is what happens when any routine can trigger the orbital frontal to create anxiety and uh, uh, obsessive ideation, even about routines that in no way are beneficial. For instance, washing one's hands 20 times a day, uh, checking if the oven's still turned on again and again and again, cleaning surfaces repetitively, opening up envelopes to see if the check was put inside, etc. People with OCD simply have a caudate, which is hijacked 
their orbital frontal lobe and has triggered it to fire more than it needs to. So, in essence, it's very difficult to change a bad habit. The most difficult of them all is uh, even up there are, of course, um, uh, heroin and smoking, both of which create so much neural release of both dopamine and opioids that anything else in comparison to them feels very low-grade. So it is still, however, very possible to change bad habits. There's two ways it can be done. The first way, which I'm not going to be talking too much about, but it's one possibility, is simply to remove from your life all of the cues that create stress that activate your desire to use whatever behavior reduces stress for you. Now, this might sound ridiculous, but it is actually uh, what people avail themselves of sometimes. If you go on a detox, if you're a drug addict, if you go on a detox outside of the city, that will remove the cues. You'll probably go somewhere in the country where you won't run into your drug dealer or all of the stressors of living with the roommates who are actively using or running into the people that you've broken up with or whatever. Uh, the other cues that cause underlying, that activate the stress that creates the ingrained routine. Uh, people go away all the time. They will go on vacations to remove themselves from the cues that activate the desire to work or become worried or obsessive or panicky, so they'll travel. Um, we Buddhists go away on retreats so that we can get away from all the cues that keep the mind busy and constantly thinking and planning, which are all subroutines that release dopamine. Uh, busyness makes us feel a little safer. Thinking makes us feel safer. They all have their rewards more so than trying to cultivate inner peace, which only releases trace amounts of serotonin and oxytocin, but doesn't particularly re reward you with blast dopamine. So meditation and spiritual practice is great for the long term. It's sustainable. You don't use up any of the neural resources, but it doesn't come with a big, you know, fabulous jolt reward that makes you feel like king of the hill. In comparison with eating a Snickers bar, meditation will lose every time. <laughs> so, uh, that's one way we can do it. We can remove from our lives all of the cues and go to a place where there's very few stressors and then start to change our bad habits with habits that do give some rewards but not the overpowering dopamine blast that we're uh, used to. The second thing we can do though is develop a way to detach from the cues or to hold the cues while they're present without activating the behavior that gives us the over reward and switch the bad behavior with a healthy habit. Now the healthy habit, once again, will not give you, reward you with as much dopamine. So you will, when you switch any bad habit you try to give up, 
will mean that your life will have, for a while, more stress. There's no way around it. If there were, it would have been invented by now, trust me. So, to give up most of our bad habits, I mean, unless we're talking about smoking and you get the gum or one of the uh, uh, vaporizers, uh, most of the time, to give up a bad habit means to go from something that really bombards us with dopamine that makes us feel powerful and strong and omniscient and uh, great for a few minutes, uh, we're switching into something that gives us much less reward but gives us other neurotransmitters which make us feel safe and connected and healthy. And those uh, switches means that we will have to develop the ability to withstand some stress. So one way we can do that is to recognize the impulses that are activating us, all the thoughts that, that push us to use our, you know, our favorite uh, behavior of choice, and to just give it a name, to say hello to it, but to hold it with compassion and to observe how it works on us without identifying with it. Now, for example, somebody who hates their job and every day before they go to work, they need to have a donut as a reward for actual actively going into the job they don't like. The donut will release a lot of dopamine, which will make them feel better about themselves and make it possible to cross the threshold for their job. The first thing is to observe the thoughts and the impulses, the anxiety, the fixation that focuses on the donut in the store window, and to say hello to it. In the work of Jeremy Schwartz, a neuroscientist who pioneered ways to work with obsessive compulsive disorder, he came up with the uh, phrase that people with OCD chant, it's not me, it's my OCD. Which I really like. I've actually, with bad habits, used that, even though I don't have OCD. I just really like it. It rhymes. It's catchy. Um, it, I can't think of anything that rhymes with caudate. So, I suppose I just wait. It's my caudate. I don't know. That's weird and kind of awful. So, uh, any way you can say hello, say hello habit. Hello routine. There you are. See you. And observe how it works. Labeling is a very powerful tool because it gives us a momentary detachment from the impulses and it activates a second part of the brain called the temporal parietal lobe which allows us to stand back from impulses for a little while and observe them. Now this brings up the second part of giving up bad habits is if you try to give up a bad habit and you don't replace it with anything that reduces stress, it will not work. Because you will be stuck with the stress that is urging you to um, you know, push forward with the routine or the bad habit. The only way to change a bad habit is to replace it with a healthier habit that still gives you some reward. 
So, the way to do this is the 15-minute rule. The 15-minute rule goes as follows. When you feel an impulse to do something, it could be to call up an ex that you know is not available. That can be an ingrained dopamine reward. You, it could be to uh, turn on Netflix rather than to do your resume or to write something that you've been putting off for a long time. Any procrastinating thing is to wait 15 minutes. Now, why do we do this? One, developing the ability to withstand for 15 minutes an impulse develops in you the ability to hold stress and not allow it to push us into the behavior. But there's another even more uh, powerful reason than that. If you withstand 15 minutes of not following through with the bad habit, you will start to feel more stress. Now why is that a good thing? Well, by adding more stress for 15 minutes, when you finally give in and follow through with the healthy replacement, it will feel really, really good. For example, suppose you're really hungry and your brain is pushing you to eat pizza for the fifth day in a row. If you wait 15 minutes and then you go to the health food place and you get something that's healthier, it will wind up almost giving you as much reward as the pizza would because it's removing more stress. It's hard to explain, but it works. So adding and forcing yourself to not give in to an impulse withstanding 15 minutes and then replacing with a healthier routine will create a greater sense of reward associated with the healthier habit. So, for instance, the person who at 4 p.m. is tempted to eat the Snickers bar, if they wait the 15 minutes, the broccoli, which normally in comparison with the Snickers bar will not in any way release as much serotonin and a reward, but if you wait the 15 minutes, the broccoli will actually, because it's reducing a lot more stress, a lot more hunger signals will actually feel almost as rewarding. Not quite, but it will feel more rewarding than it normally would. Now, there's other techniques we can do as well, which are two, beyond the 15 minutes, try to as we said earlier, remove as much of the ambient stress from your life as you can. That doesn't mean, in the first example, I said go away on a retreat or a vacation. While you're here, try to remove as many unnecessary stressors from your life as possible. The two ways to do this is, one, simplify. When you're going to try to give up a bad habit, make a deal with yourself that you're not going to try to... Uh, address uh, some of the habits that other habits that cause you stress or you're going to give yourself a pass with worrying about some issues that cause stress for instance uh, changing your job or whatever put that aside while you're trying to give up a bad habit if you add or you have a lot of stress present in the background it will make it very difficult so what we want to do 
is reduce as many unnecessary stressors as we can. And then, as well, when we take any effort to change a bad habit, then to reward ourselves with a self-soothing behavior, one that is not a bad habit, but still creates a reward state. So, for instance, you eat the broccoli instead of the Snickers bar, or instead of having the drink at the bar with somebody, you just connect and talk with someone, or instead of um, turning on Netflix when you're lonely, you go to a place where friends are instead of isolating, or whatever. Whenever we do something healthy, then afterwards we could do something that's associated with a state of reward, for example, uh, getting a massage. If you like getting a pedicure, I don't understand it, but do that. Manicure, hand massage, uh, sitting by the water, uh, going to a place that we really love, taking a day off, going to a museum, watching a movie, something that is not a bad habit, but is still associated with some kind of reward. It's important that if we do give in to a bad habit immediately, never to beat yourself up. You never want to associate trying to change a bad habit to a good one with self-condemnation, judgment, criticism. So even if in one minute you find yourself uh, I don't know, binge eating, whatever we do, uh, don't beat yourself up. Under any circumstances, beating ourselves up simply associates uh, adding more stress and self-judgment with the attempt to better our lives and to achieve happier lives. So even if it's only one minute we withstand, just feel good for that one minute. It is a gradual process. It doesn't work instantly, but with time and with support and talking about our efforts and seeking reward from other people by acknowledging it, even if it doesn't seem that important to us uh, or to a bunch of our friends, find the one person who will reward us and that will help. So find a really comfortable seated position and just try to find a nice balance. And by, by which I mean, um, a balanced position means having the head not too far in front of the belly, just a nice alignment between the head and the hips. And uh, what helps is just to pull the shoulders slightly back, closing the eyes. Or if you don't like closing your eyes, just look down Try not to look around the room. Uh, sight is a very rich visual, of course, field, and it presents so much stimuli that it's very difficult to pay attention to the body sensations, the feelings, the emotions, the other sensations and that are calling out for our attention.
this is the time we can rebalance our awareness to begin to learn how to deactivate ourselves when we are activated by events in the world and things that people in our lives may or may not do. If our happiness entirely comes from trying to control other people or the world around us, and we don't have the tools to develop some ease within, we're certainly setting ourselves up for a rocky ride. So let's take a few breaths and just use or introduce the idea of using the breath to relax both the mind and body. So take a nice, smooth, long in-breath, and as you do so, if you'd like, pull your shoulders up towards your ears, and trying to touch the ears with the shoulders, holding it in for an extra bead, and then as we breathe out through the mouth, releasing the shoulders down. And then just gently, to whatever degree is comfortable, pull it back, and then to, which opens up the chest, and then for the second breath, pulling in the belly, tucking the belly in, and as we release, softening the belly. And then for the third breath, tightening the muscles in the face, the fists, the legs, buttocks, arms, anything you'd like, tighten, 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 and then as we breathe out, soften. So take a quick scan of the body and see if there's anything that is immediately calling out to be addressed. For instance, clothes that feel too tight, maybe sitting on one leg or feeling of impingement somewhere. See if you can just find the most comfortable seat and really soften into the space around the body. And then whatever state the mind is in right now, whether you're anxious or tired, confident or apprehensive, pessimistic or optimistic, distracted or present, whatever place, that's a perfect place to start. So start each meditation with the view that there's nothing wrong with us, there's nothing missing from our lives, there's nothing we need that isn't present. And adding additionally an intention to not in any way beat ourselves up, to add frustration or self-judgment, to use 
compassion, kindness, patience, mind that observes without bullying any of our internal experience. So for the first half of the meditation, we'll do a concentration practice, which means we'll keep an anchor in the mind. An anchor can be the breath or just awareness of sounds, awareness of any ongoing sensations, awareness of the lights behind the eyelids. And you don't need to have this be the only object in your awareness, if you're focusing on just knowing whether you're breathing in or out, or just listening to the sounds in the room, or you could repeat in the mind a metaphrase such as, may I be truly peaceful. You can be aware of other sensations, you could even know that there are other thoughts going on. The key to concentration is simply to keep an ongoing awareness of one object. Everything else can be part of the experience, but just keep that anchor available. That will keep you like an anchor of a boat. It doesn't restrict the boat to just one exact spot, but it keeps the boat from floating upstream or downstream or around. It just limits how far away it can go. An anchor limits how far our awareness can stray from the present moment. If you are keeping the breath in mind, a counting strategy is very useful. Counting one on the in-breath, two on the out, three on the next in-breath, four on the next out-breath, and once you reach five on the next in-breath, then start to count back down, four on the following exhalation. So we're counting up from one to five and back down again. And you only need to count as long as it is useful once the breath, awareness of the sensations of breathing just comes naturally, then there's no need to add. When the mind wanders, bring it back without adding any frustration. Feel good about developing awareness. If you repeat a phrase in the mind like, may I be truly peaceful or happy, you only need to do that as a way to keep thoughts that might completely yank you away from the present moment. from dominating awareness.
for the insight part of the meditation. You can release keeping whatever object you've been keeping in your awareness, whether it's the breath, the phrase in the mind, the sounds of the room, the other ongoing sensation. And just open the mind to be very spacious, aware of all the objects that are available to the mind in this present moment. There is, of course, in addition to the breath, the feeling of sitting on the ground on a cushion or in a chair, the feeling of clothes in the body, there's the lights flickering behind the eyes, the changing feelings in the front of the body letting us know whether we feel comfortable or uncomfortable tightness in the belly perhaps, or in the chest, or in the face. There are the energy levels of the mind, sometimes tired, sometimes anxious, or filled with energy, or distracted. And then there are, of course, visual and word-based thoughts. Visual images generally play on the area behind the forehead or perhaps the eyes. You might see memories or fantasies. Or you might hear inner chatter somewhere near where you hear external sounds. You might hear them near the ears. So use all of the actual experiences of the body and the sensations arriving from the world to keep us from identifying wholly with the thoughts and just use this practice to note how often thoughts arise and pass. So keep the awareness observing where you see visual memories in your mind and hear inner chatter or inner thoughts. And just note how they arise, what they want to tell you, which thoughts really want all of your attention, which thoughts are satisfied with a little attention, and how they pass, if there's any underlying themes of the thoughts, like aversion or craving.
sometimes our thoughts might be beating up on ourselves and other times they might be grandiose. Sometimes pessimistic in nature, sometimes wildly optimistic. Without any judgment. See if you can develop an ability to observe the thoughts without climbing inside of them and losing awareness of all the other sensations around you so that you're both present in the room, in your body, but also noting the thoughts as they arise and pass.
So we're going to begin the transition from the meditation. It's always a good idea at the end of a practice to take some time to recognize and self-reward ourselves for our endeavors. We always want to associate our practice with positive self-appraisal. And when we reflect, we are engaging in a behavior that not only is very, very healthy for the brain, prevents all different kinds of uh, damage to the hippocampus and memory improvement and emotion regulation, but it also doesn't exploit anyone, it doesn't harm anyone, it doesn't consume the world's resources, and when we have a practice, we're more likely to engage with other people skillfully, so it's not just for our benefit, it's for the benefit of all other beings that we encounter. So it's a blameless practice. Noting that is both valid and worthwhile. And then when it comes time to open your eyes, do it very, very slowly, taking the entire length of the sound of the bowl, so that you can incorporate sight back into your awareness without it becoming dominant and pushing all the other sensations into the background, like body awareness, breath awareness, awareness of feelings and moods. So take your time to develop a balanced attention. <laughs> 